in this building. And uh, we raced through the praise and worship so people weren't melting. We, I actually preached a reasonably short sermon uh, as a result, knowing that it was pretty intense in here. Well, I've decided, no, I didn't decide, but today we're going to make up for Wednesday evening. So I'm hoping uh, that you had a good night's sleep, and I'm hoping that you're not too tired and not too hot, because uh, as Jeffrey said to me when I sent him the sermon for the thing, he said, Pastor, you've hit a record. There is so much. (laughs) This sermon is 50% longer than usual. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to preach 50% longer, but it's a lot here, so... Okay, roll up your sleeves in the spirit, tune in, get your pen and paper ready, get your heart open, and uh, lock in, let's do this together, and I believe God's going to help us. I was sent a video uh, uh, from uh, a church in South Africa, the uh, uh, Habola Church. Habola means drinking. And the pastor of the church said these words, we connect with God by drinking alcohol. I'm going to show a little clip and you can watch it. People are enjoying the heaven on earth in Kabula Church. So Kabula Church is a small heaven on earth. Each and every church is connecting to the God in their own way. But in Kabula Church, we are connecting to God under the influence of liquor. I am the founder and the leader of Kabula Church. Kabula Church is a church that was meant to accommodate the so-called drunkards that were rejected from their colonial churches so that they may come together as one in Kabula Church to can enjoy worship and drink the liquor as they wish at the same time. The liquor that we are supposed to be drinking is inside the stomach already. Everybody over here, as you see the bishops, the archbishops, the owners of the tavern, as you see the congregation, they, 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 they swallow before they come to the church and then they sanitize their stomach so that we may be able to can meet with our God. May God give you grace. May God give you heaven on earth in Kabula Church. We are beat under the influence But in that regard, the Holy Spirit, we can hear the Holy Spirit from above. That is in our midst. So thank you very much. May God bless Kabula Church now and forevermore. Take Kabula Church to the next level. Okay. Now, as disturbing as that is, there are Christians in our churches that think they glorify Jesus by sipping alcohol. Somehow, by drinking alcohol, they are magnifying his grace. They are showing to others their freedom in Christ. 
C.H. Spurgeon began his ministry in agreement with Christians drinking alcohol in moderation, said these words later in life and in ministry, he said, next to preaching the gospel, the most necessary thing to be done in England is to induce our people to become abstainers. Now, whether or not that is true, that it is the next most necessary thing after the gospel, I'm not sure. But abstinence is an issue that needs addressing. And I want to preach a sermon entitled, The Devil's Cocktail, from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Now, let's consider the devil's cocktail and think firstly about the argument that's before us. The Bible is not silent about alcohol, and you know, why would it be? Uh, we, we know its impact on humanity, its its uh, uh, effect, as one poet called it, the devil's juice. Simon, uh, Solomon said these words, Proverbs 23, verse 31 to 32, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, at the, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Let me tell you, I am on track by the Holy Ghost. Last night, I had the worst night's sleep for a long time, tormented by demons. And here we are this morning, we're starting because this is the word of the Lord for this congregation. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. As a new convert, no one had to tell me or warn me about the dangers of alcohol. We had seen its effects. I had done things that I wish I'd never done under its influence. I had seen others hurt by it and didn't need a long explanation. As soon as I became a Christian, I knew uh, that alcohol was not for me. Because along with the laughter and the gaiety, in the devil's cocktail swirling in its midst, as you hold up the glass, we see the trail of death. We see the abuse as a result of it, the physical side effects. We look into this glass and we see the violence, the mistakes made, and the minds ruined, we witness the crimes and the regret. We read of Noah after the flood being recorded as the first man that ever got drunk and the consequence, or recorded as the first man getting drunk, and we see the consequences playing out in his family. We read the next drunken act of Lot and the incest that was attached to that. We read of a mother sitting down with her son, a king, and she's warning him about 
about women and wine, it's almost like she's begging him. She's saying, son, you're better than alcohol. Proverbs 31, 2 to 7, what my son and what son of my womb and what son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Son, she's saying alcohol is for those who have no hope. Alcohol is for those that are perishing, for those in deep poverty, for those that see no way out of their lives and they turn to it, but you are a king. Don't you understand who you are? Because when you know who you are and you know the hope that is before you and the calling that is before you, you're not going to touch alcohol. The Bible is filled with warnings from God regarding strong drink and certain wines. Seventy times he warns of the sin of drunkenness. There's clear, uh, 19 clear examples throughout the Bible of intoxication from alcoholic wine. Our text says it's a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Woe, the prophet said in Isaiah 5.22. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. In fact, God said, he's, he's, uh, he's uh, speaking and he says, I don't even want it in my house. Leviticus 10 verse 8 to 11, then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, nor your sons with you. When you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean and that you may teach the children of Israel all of the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. I don't want you drinking this and coming into my presence because I want you to be able to distinguish between that which is holy and that which is unholy, between the unclean and the clean. Now, if I stop right here, most of you uh, would go, that's powerful, Pastor. That's enough for me. You're preaching to the choir, Pastor. We get it. As God said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If I stop right here and said, let's bow our heads, probably 90-odd percent of this congregation would go, amen, Pastor. We're not touching alcohol. We're removing ourselves from the unclean. We know uh, uh, the unholy. We know it's a mocker. We know uh, it destroys lives. We've seen its effects as well, Pastor. We're not touching it. But there are some that what I have said so far unmoves them. 
because as I'm preaching, they're saying, yes, but. Yes, but. But what about? And as a pastor, you sense that even good people can get swayed. Yeah, but Jesus turned water into wine. Remember the wedding pastor, Jesus turned water into into wine. Jesus turned water into wine is the national anthem. It is the motto of every sinner and sipping saint. You know, the first time I ever got completely legless, the the first time I ever got completely uh, 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 drunk was at a wedding. Friends of mine, I think it was their brother getting uh, married, Russell and Bevan Linfoot were their names. I was probably 15, 16 years old. Uh, the family were quite happy for young uh, uh, guys to drink. And so, man, it was my first time, and, and I was into it. I, I made an absolute fool of myself. Uh, first time drunk was at a wedding. So this is what we have. We have the master of the wedding in John chapter 2. We have a wedding before us. And he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when all the guests have well drunk, uh, then the inferior, you've kept the good wine until now. The implication of the sipping saint and the uh, sinner is, hey, uh, uh, what's happening here is, you know, the party's going on, the wedding party, and everyone's getting a little tipsy, and everybody's getting a little drunk because, you know, that's what they did, and they gave out the cheap booze first. Uh, no, sorry, they gave out the best booze first. Uh, everyone got a little plastered, and when they're a little plastered, they can't tell the difference, and that's when we bring out the cheap rubbish, because they can't tell anyway. And you're amazing, he said to the man, you're amazing. You've kept the good stuff until the end. It's incredible. The implication is that Jesus is livening up a drunken party, that somehow everyone's got a little tipsy, and now he's going to kick them over the edge. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And that scenario that I just said fits into your mind of the first ever sign that Jesus did. This is what he would have done to manifest his glory. Uh, We'll look at this in just a moment. Deuteronomy, but pastor, Deuteronomy 14, verse 25 to 26, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, or similar drink, and that means strong drink, or for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. See, pastor, it's clear God's blessing is upon those who drink alcohol in a religious setting as a family. He's into it. In fact, he's encouraging it, but as you read the context of this scripture, it has to do with tithing and worship. It has to do with eating before God as a sign that you fear Him. 
that you would take your oxen and sheep. No doubt there were sacrifices and eating before the Lord. But what do we do with the strong drink that is mentioned about honoring the Lord? Do we join the Habula church and uh, drink it and celebrate and now we're going to get in touch with God? No, because nowhere does it say that to drink alcohol was an act of worship. But what we do read with what people did with strong drink in Numbers 28 verse 7, and the drink offering, therefore, shall be the fourth part of a hin for the one lamb. In the holy place shalt thou cause the strong wine to be poured unto the Lord for a drink offering. What they did as an act of worship is that they took that wine and they poured it out. Oh, do what your heart desires. You're going to worship God. You're going to bring your tithes and your offerings. And if it's so far to go, then exchange it for money. But here it is, or buy and here it is, you're to worship their eating, and with your strong drink, the only record we have is you're going to pour it out unto God as an offering. Uh, now, all of that means uh, you have to pray about that and say, what is, I don't know, maybe it just means God, we don't need this to make us happy. God, we don't need to be blind to make us happy. God, we worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and maybe that's what it means, but either way, it's poured out. Mark Driscoll, who was once pastored the, the, the Mars church, he was kicked out for all sorts of stuff after a while. He's still popular today in some circles because Christians sometimes are completely nuts. He once pastored a mega church. He said these words, my Bible study convicted me of my sin of abstinence from alcohol. So in repentance, I drank hard cider over lunch with our worship pastor. You see, the feeling is to abstain is legalism and pharisaical. You think you're holier than thou. Remember, Jesus was the friend of sinners. He was a wine-bibber. Matthew 11, verse 18 to 20. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. He was a tippler. He was a lover of wine, a habitual drinker. John didn't fellowship. John didn't eat or drink. He didn't even drink non-alcoholic wine, which was the common custom. He did none of that. He had honey and locusts, and they ridiculed him. Jesus did did uh, 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 eat, uh, and I would put to you drink alcoholic, uh, non-alcoholic wine, and uh, they see him as a glutton and a wine-bibber. They called him a wine-bibber, and it was a false accusation. He's neither a glutton nor a wine-bibber. Judges 9, verse 12 to 13. I told you, gotta, we gotta, hope you're awake this morning. Judges 9, 12 to 13. Then the trees said to the vine, come, and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over the trees? See, pastor, people are happy. Yeah, it also says God is happy. So you're, you're saying that, that what this scripture is saying is that God is 
happy uh, because of alcohol, that man, that really cheers God up like he needs it. Well, should I cease from my new wine, tirosh, and we're going to look at this word a bit later on, or fruit on the vine, we'll examine that closer, but the context of this parable is the trees are looking for someone to rule over them. They've come to the vine, and they've said, rule over us. And the vine has replied, and basically saying, I have my place. I have the vine harvest, the fruit on the vine, the new wine that, that makes both God and man happy. It makes God happy because you're doing what you're called to do, vine. You're bringing forth a harvest. You're bringing forth uh, uh, what God uh, commanded you to do. You've made both God and man happy by his responsibility. Why would I leave it and do another calling? Okay, I move very quickly through this first point. If I stopped after the first part, for most people, it would be enough messages against alcohol and strong drink. We've seen its effects. We've heard of God saying, I don't even want it in my house. We've heard of it being a mocker. We've heard of it, uh, uh, God saying, come out. Uh, Woe to men, mighty at drinking wine. We, we see all that. Uh, we've, we've looked uh, very briefly at, at some of the, well, Jesus turned water into wine. Listen, he was just, he was causing a big party and he's obviously into it. Uh, 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 Moses uh, talked about strong wine, but now we've seen that's poured out. Uh, we've talked about the false accusation of him being a wine bibber and the vine was not saying God loves my booze and it cheers him up. What makes God happy like it is very clear when someone does what they're called to do. The vine says, I'm not going to rule over the trees and leave my vine harvest. I'm not going to stop my new wine, the fresh grape juice. I'm not going to stop my tarosh. I'm not going to stop my grapes to come over and rule over. What makes men and God happy is when I do what I'm called to do. So let's look at the error. Why so many people get, well, not so many people, why some people get tripped up uh, uh, through this. The Bible translates the English word wine from no less than nine Hebrew words and four Greek words. In other words, it doesn't matter in your Bible what Hebrew word was used or what Greek word was used. the translators simply put the word wine. The problem is the reason why the Hebrews, uh, the, the, the Jews used different words is they had different meanings. The reason why the Greeks, because they had different meanings. But we in the English just use one word and it covers it all, but they don't mean all the same thing. We're going to examine not all uh, uh, nine and not, not all 13, because we're already going to be here a long time. Uh, but we're going to look at the most used, three of the most used. The first word, the most popular uh, Hebrew word that we've translated wine is the word yayin. It's used 141 times. It appears in 31 of the 39 books of the Old Testament, from Noah to Nehemiah. So therefore, when you understand what yayin means, 
it will give you an appreciation. When we use the word wine, it covers it, it, it's used every time. But yayin was used to describe both non-alcoholic wine and fermented or alcoholic wine. That word yayin was used to describe uh, grapes hanging on a tree all the way through to intoxicating drink. And I'm going to just read these scriptures. If you're taking notes, you can have a look later. Yayin is used to describe a harvest prior to the wine press in Jeremiah 40, verse 10 and verse 12. So before it's even gone to the wine press, the Bible uses the word yayin, which is translated wine. Prior to fermentation in Jeremiah 48, verse 32 to verse 33, uh, it talks about uh, treading out the grapes and the garments then being washed in yayin in Isaiah 63, verse 1 to 4. If you're treading out grapes, they're not alcoholic. There's no time to ferment. So yayin was firstly, well, in both ways, it was used to describe non-alcoholic, the grape the fruit on the vine, uh, even the, the vine itself, uh, all the way through to alcoholic wine. Yayin was seen, or wine was seen along with corn as a basic commodity for life. Genesis 14, 18, Judges 19, 19, Proverbs 9, verse 5. I'm going to quote uh, a commentator here. In Lamentations 2, 12, Yayin wine is used to describe the drink which suckling babes cry out for in the midst of terrible famine. The children and the suckling swoon in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is corn and wine, or yayin? These children and sucklings were accustomed to corn and wine for refreshment, but now they're perishing for lack thereof. These babes are still sucking the breast of their mothers, but over such an age they're able to speak. It is unimaginable that a mother, regardless of culture, would give a suckling babe alcohol as a drink, even less so when famishing of hunger and thirst. Yayin here was the simple juice of the grape which would satisfy nourish and refresh the child. So many times you hear of bread and wine, Nehemiah 5.15, yayin, bread and, and wine, because it's seen as the basic commodities of life. It's seen as the basic sustenance or commodity of life. On the other hand, Noah drank, planted a vineyard and drank of the wine or the yayin and was drunk. So you can see our text says wine, yayin, is a mocker. Isaiah 28 verse 7 to 8 says, but they have also erred through yayin or wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. In a book, and we're going to put this on our app as a recommendation of reading, called Sober Saints by Keith Malcolmson, he says these words, when yayin is used in Psalms 104, verse 14 to 15, it is commended. But when the same word is used in Proverbs 20, verse 1 and 23, verse 31, it is condemned. In one place, wine or yayin is considered a blessing. In another, it's a curse. 
In one it is approved, but in another it is disapproved. In one place it means blessing. In another it means sorrow. In one place it's to be labored for and expected and sought for, but in another place it is to be shunned, rejected, and avoided. In one place it is the symbol of the wrath of God, but in another it is a symbol of the mercy of God. The conclusion of this first word in the Hebrew, yayin, is simple. Yayin wine is both encouraged and forbidden. It is condemned as an intoxicating drink, but it is encouraged as a non-intoxicating drink. So that's the first word, yayin. Tirosh, and it's going to be a lot smaller, a lot quicker, Tirosh is the second most commonly used word for wine in the Hebrew, uh, in the Old Testament. That's the word that was used uh, in the vine parable that we just talked about. Tirosh is the Hebrew. When he said, hey, my new wine uh, uh, that gives God cheer and man, it's not even a tirosh uh, is uh, used uh, 38 times Uh, in the Old Testament, 26 times it's translated wine, 11 times new wine, and one time as sweet wine. Not once is the word tirosh used to describe fermented grapes. It was fresh grape juice. Not once, most of the time, in fact, 32 times out of those 38, it's mentioned along corn, along with corn, oil, and wine, or tirosh. In other words, the basics of life, of health, of uh, cooking, of uh, uh, enjoyment, uh, corn, oil, and fresh grape juice, or tirosh. Now, As I said, I used to be a drinker before I became a Christian, and I'm thinking because you know in our culture we don't sit around uh, drinking grape juice per se, and so I'm thinking "Mm," you know I've been to fellowships and I bought the odd bottle myself of uh, uh, Schlur. I must confess they advertise it as uh, 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 grape juice, which it is obviously, but I don't know. Maybe I'm getting old, but I don't particularly. It's it's very sweet. Uh, It's a bit kind of. It's a bit nasty, to be honest. And so I found it uh, kind of quite hard to imagine sitting around uh, drinking slur uh, and feeling good about life. It just, it just didn't sit with me. I said, well, Lord, you said tarosh. Uh, it makes everyone glad and it's good. And so good old Google, I thought, man, let me have a look uh, and see if I can find out. Uh, uh, get some tarosh wine. Ha <laughs> ha, and I did. We wish you a merry Christmas. No, anyway, so I went online and uh, in my hand is Efrat Tirosh grape juice, Muscat, natural grape juice. It was sold in a place called, I'm doing some advertising if you're watching here today. Forget slur, this is no. Okay, so the grapevine was the place I went to uh, here in London, and it's the home, it advertised itself as the home of kosher wine. Kosher, this is advertised as kosher for Passover. Now, I bought two bottles. You can only see I've only got one here because I drank the other one. I took the other one over to uh, a fellowship around uh, uh, Brother Ernie's house on 
Thursday night, Ernie and Karen had me and Carol over, Nick and Pam Kuriaku, and I thought, let me, let me bring out my tirosh. You know, put it in the fridge for a while, beautiful and cold. I never had it before. I thought, let me try. Brought it there and explained the story to them. Uh, uh, Karen had cooked uh, uh, a gorgeous meal. It was like a little, little chicken, uh, like a tomatoey kind of base, kind of chicken mixture uh, with a little bit of peppers in there, it looked like, uh, or, or something like that. And then on top was some cheese and uh, uh, corn chips, not particularly kosher, I suppose. I don't know. But anyway, so we had all that uh, mixed with uh, olive uh, olive bread. I thought, ah, the olive bread, that kind of fits. And so then I brought out this and we had it. I want to tell you, I can understand. I can understand in a hot country. I can understand in a culture. I can understand in the desert. I can understand in the wilderness. I can understand in the community why drinking uh, uh, Tarosh grape juice uh, is good stuff. Anyway, I have no shares, <laughs> no shares in it, but it's not a slur, let me tell you. When they came, so that's what I'm trying to say to you. So it's not uncommon. It's not something that we go, well, it was a common practice of drinking tarosh. When they came to translate the Old Testament into the Greek, the Septuagint, the Jewish scholars used the Greek word oinos in all but two cases. Now, the reason why it's important for you to understand that is I'm going to come now to the Greek word that they use for wine, oinos, and they use the word oinos. I know if you're Greek, you're you're cringing at the way I'm speaking it, but oinos was used to describe nearly all all but two cases to describe this this tirosh, and so it is clear that though wine in the New Testament, oinos, was alcoholic, it could also be used, and they used it uh, uh, to describe non-alcoholic wine, or tarosh. It's very important. So now let's move into the Greek, uh, into the New Testament. 33 times oinos uh, is used. Far more common word. Let me read this to you. These three Hebrew words... Shekar, which we didn't look at, which, which every time it is used, it's talking about fermented drink. Tirosh, which was unfermented drink. And Yayin, which was used for both, were almost often translated into the Greek language by using this one word, oinos. In other words, the Greek word oinos is a generic term used to cover the full scope of meaning given to the Hebrew words Yayin, Tirosh, and Shekar. Now, Hopefully I've not lost you. It's warming up in here, but I'm trusting. Please listen to this. The reason why that's important to understand. Ten times Jesus used the word oinos. Ten times or one third of of the, the usage in the New Testament was used by Christ himself in reference to wine skins. He used the word, or the English says, new wine. Well, we've already established in the Old Testament, new wine was tarosh, fresh, unfermented, vine harvest, or fresh juice. Jesus is saying, if you put new wine, unfermented wine, in old wine skins, the problem is whatever's in the old wine skin can begin to kick off this new wine, and it can begin to ferment. 
Oinos is used to describe non-alcoholic wine. In Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with oinos or wine. That's clearly fermented wine that could intoxicate. So the reason why I'm saying these things is that wine is used to describe both non-alcoholic and alcoholic wine. So let's go to this wedding that we think is one big knees up. And now now Jesus is going to, you know, and so uh, Jesus created six stone jars, which they say have roughly 20 to 30 gallons in each. Jesus created 120 to 180 gallons of wine, literally nearly a thousand bottles. You're saying that Jesus made a thousand bottles of booze. He took a look at this wedding and said, nah, come on, Lord, please, come on. Can we run out of wine? Okay, a thousand bottles of premium booze, and that's what you're thinking. Just, you know, his first sign was to help people get over their inhibitions. His first sign was kind of to encourage the party. His first sign that created to the glory of God, you're saying, was uh, uh, to to help people have a a party, a, a drunken party. No, the Bible says it was good wine. See, the trouble with our carnal mind, we think good wine means more booze. Every man at the beginning, the man said, sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, people take that word, the word methio, and they say, look, this word means you get intoxicated. So what the master of the house is saying is, hey, they've all got a little drunk, and now you've brought out the best wine. Well, it is true that methio, this Greek word, can be used to describe intoxication. So if you stop right there, say, okay, that's what I think it means in this case, well, then it was a booze up. But as Wycliffe and Coverdale and others have translated correctly in this context, the Greek word muthio can also be used and translated as drunk to the full, well drunk, drunk freely. In fact, in the Greek uh, Old Testament, the Septuagint, that word methuo is used to describe eating to the point of being satisfied and full. When we had finished at Brother Ernie and Karen's house, unfortunately, me and Nick Kuriako together, Kuriako together is not a good combination. We devoured, we were like locusts devouring the meal, me and him tag teaming the bread rolls and the, and the uh, 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 corn chip cheese chicken delight. We polished it off, and uh, I want to tell you at the end, it was like, right? We were methio. We were uh, full. We were, uh, 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 in fact, uh, the Septuagint uh, uses this word to describe eating to the point of being satisfied and full. In Psalm 65, verse 9 to 10, Methio depicts the heavy soaking, refreshing rain of God which sustains the earth. We're talking about uh, uh, being so full that you're overflowing, and the master is saying to the groom, he's saying, man, 
people have been freely drinking. They've drunk, you know, they've been drinking all day and they're full. They're full to the brim and now you bring out the best. Well, let's pause for just a moment and divert from the subject of wine and think on this word. I want to make the case. I want to reestablish and make sure you get this. This word, well drunk, methio, uh, is also found in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20 to verse 22. It says, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now, the sipping saint will use the argument and come to this scripture and say, listen, The Corinthians are abusing the Lord's Supper. This was a common meal. It wasn't just how we would do it today with the the wine and the bread or the grape juice and the bread in a service. They had a whole meal of it. And part of it was they would all come together. And so it's clear that there was problems in the Corinthian church. In this communal supper, some were overeating and the Uh, Sipping Saint says, yes, some were overeating and getting drunk, which was unacceptable behavior for Christians in a worship service. So Paul is telling them to take their meals and their drinking home. The implication is that Paul is saying, if you want to indulge, do it at home. And so some conclude that Paul is permitting them to drink in privacy of their own homes. In other words, Paul's saying, when you come to church, you guys are getting drunk, that's not right, don't you have homes to go back to? In other words, get drunk at home. Don't come to church and get drunk. Well, that's a little odd if you translate it like that, because this is the same Paul who had condemned drunkenness a few chapters before, saying they won't enter the kingdom of God. These are drunkards. In fact, he said, don't even eat with someone called a brother who is a drunkard. I can't see uh, Paul saying to a church, don't eat with Christians that call themselves Christians and they're drunkards. Don't even eat a meal with them. These people don't even enter the kingdom of God. And then say to those that are supposedly getting drunk in the church, hey guys, come on, this is not right, go home and drink. Because that word methio does not just mean drinking to get intoxicated. It simply means, as we've already put out and established, it means being filled to the full. They were eating so much and drinking so much they were full. In the Septicant version, again, this Greek word methio is used in Psalms 23 verse 5 to translate my cup overflows. Psalm 65 verse 10, your, you, your water, you water its ridges abundantly. In Hosea 14 verse 7, it talks about being revived or sated with grain. Let me show you some commentators. Uh, In defining Methio, we find one. uh, This is in uh, J.A. Bass's Greek-English lexicon. One, Methio is to be drunken or inebriated. Yes. 
Two, it can mean to drink freely and cheerfully, though not drunkenness. Number three, it can be used to be used to be filled or plentifully filled. Little Scott, in his Greek-English translation or lexicon, says, of things to be drenched, steeped in any liquid, and its cognate to be filled with food. So in other words, this word methio, now it makes a bit more sense because the Apostle Paul, returning to our passage, says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others and one is hungry and the other is drunk. Now when you read that, it kind of jars a little bit, doesn't it? One is hungry and the other is drunk from alcohol. It doesn't, it's not a contrast. He's contrasting. One is drunk, one is hungry, and the other is methio, not drunk, but full. One is hungry, and one is full, plentiful filled. It's kind of like some of our church fellowships that we used to have. I remember years ago, he used to oh, it'd make me laugh. He used to, you have church fellowship. Hey, everybody bring some food, right? And we'd have a big church fellowship. Everyone in the church would bring food. Then you see brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. They've got two packets of crisps. You know what I'm saying? And they're not even the big ones. Little packet of crisps, and they're bringing it to the fellowship, and then, you know they throw it on the table, and then oh, but they're first in line, and they're balancing the chicken and the rice. They're piled up the 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 the, the mac cheese like a like a shield. It's covering the plate so they can build it higher. They've got the art of of uh, plunging through that table, and they walk out like that, and they brought two packets of crisps. There's something about that that's not right. We're so full, and others at the end of the line, sorry, all we've got is half a wing of a little bit of chicken left for you. Sorry, let's just, and, and we have to share that with your wife, sorry. And we, you know, it's like at the end of the fellow, you're last in line because everyone has eaten and you're going to go home hungry. Same principle in our text. They're coming together and some are hungry and others are not drunk. It's the word methio. He's making a contrast. It's talking about full. So that's why when the man comes to Jesus, uh, uh, when they're talking about not comes to Jesus, that's why at the wedding, uh, he's saying these men have already drunk. No, not intoxicated, but they've drunk to the limit. Why are you bringing out the good wine now? Okay, so we're moving here. Here's a little another diversion. We're actually not doing too badly for time. <clears throat> at the Passover... Matthew 26, verse 27 to verse 29, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Communion service was uh, uh, the Lord teaching us a a, a representation of his own body and life. So he says, unleavened bread is eaten 
as a representation of his body. It was to have a Passover. It was to have no leaven in it. Why? Because the Lord's body is pure. The Lord's body, there's no meat. And so the unleavened bread represented his body and the fruit of the vine represented his blood. No fermentation, no uh, uh, things within it, no uh, uh, nothing unclean. It's simply the blessing uh, uh, free from ferment, the pure grape juice. Uh, uh, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this, I'm going to have this fresh in the kingdom of God. Well, he was the same God that said to his priests, I don't want you coming into my presence with any strong drink or having drunk any strong drink. And now in the kingdom of God, our high priest is going to bring out the booze. I don't think so. It's talking about the new, the tirosh. It's talking about the refreshing grape juice because the vineyard is a picture of God's blessing. Vines are mentioned 54 times and vineyards 94 times in the Old Testament alone. Wheat, olives, grapes, all signified economic health, food, raisins, healthy drink, grape oil from the seeds, fodder from its leaves, the blessing of the blood of the grape, or the vineyard was seen as prosperity. The vine was seen as prosperous to, to the farmers of that day. Uh, that meant money. It meant food for the animals. It meant health. Uh, it meant uh, uh, increase. It meant all of the, the byproducts of grapes, raisins, etc., etc., etc. It meant all of these things, and, uh, 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 but never in Israel's history was strong drink seen as a blessing to God's people. It was condemned, and, dis, and though it's distinct from alcoholic wine, it's because you make strong drink from other things than grapes, as we know, It's condemned because of the common denominator of ethyl alcohol. So I'm going to close with the power of abstinence. Our opening video of the Church of Kabbalah said we connect to God through alcohol. Now to us, we look at that and think, man, but there really is a spiritual dimension here. Clement of Alexandria in, in, in uh, 152.15 said these words, I therefore admire those who have adopted an austere life and who are fond of water, the medicine of the temperance, and flee as far as possible from wine, shunning it as they would the danger of fire. Jerome said these words, if experience gives me a right to advise, I would begin by urging you and warning you as Christ's spouse, to avoid wine as you would a poison. For, we for wine is the final weapon used by demons against the young. From the very beginning, when man began to make his own religion, there were gods of intoxication. From the very beginning, we have the god of wine, uh, Geth Shinara, the mother vine stock, Nicassia, the lady of intoxicating fruit, where wine was a vital part of worship. Now, these gods, uh, their name diversified, but the god was basically the same in character, nature, and habit. In Egypt, he became known as Osiris. Uh, uh, to the Greeks, he was known as Dionysus, uh, and to the Romans, he was known as Bacchus. I quote, 
Dionysus in the days of his youth, this is to the Greeks, is portrayed as a young man with a beautiful feminine face and, and is strongly connected to homosexuality. He is frequently seen riding upon a panther or a lion or upon a griffin or a tiger-led chariot. He is normally either naked or dressed in an animal skin. In later life, he's portrayed as an old, bearded, drunk, naked man. He is the god of wine, singing, dancing, hilarity, games, fancy dress, music, lust, and immorality. He was the driving force behind the Greek theater, pleasure, and festivity. Fermented wine was a gift from his hand for the pleasure and enjoyment of mankind. Accompanying him were the young, wild, dancing females called the Manad, Bacchae, who led the way in dance, music, and general entertainment in the worship of Dionysus. Their name literally means raving ones because of their frenzied dance under the influence of wine. No wonder Paul said, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. There were prophets in the Old Testament and there are prophets in our generation who promote and encourage alcohol drinking amongst God's people. Alcohol poisons morality and spirituality. Hosea 7 verse 5, the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers. Princes poisoned the king with wine and he became a scoffer. In this book, Sober Saints by Keith Malcolmson, a militant promotion of social drinking has always been a symptom of a departure from God, holy convictions and the ancient paths of truth. Backslidden people will be sent prophets. People that are looking for a way out. People that are looking to be as close to the world as possible. People that are looking will be given reasons. A backslidden people will be sent prophets who will begin to prophesy that they should drink wine and strong drink. And a backslidden people will receive such a message and messenger. If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. Micah 2 verse 11. God says these people are so bad that even if someone came to them and said, God's changed his mind about alcohol, you can all drink up and have a party, they'd go, amen, brother. Amen, brother. I can see that. Remember, Jesus turned water into wine and, uh, 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 because you'll be sent them. And they have given the Nazarites wine to drink. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. You see, I've seen it. I've seen on fire kids. I've seen young men, young women get touched by God and have a desire for the Lord. And then someone shows them an internet site. Someone twists, someone turns. Someone says, well, what about, eh, just legal, it's just the potter's house. And I've seen these kids. 
And I've watched how so quickly their fire goes. So quickly they turn unto other stuff. Because alcohol is spiritual. And so is abstinence. There were sons in the house of the Rechabites who when they were offered in Jeremiah 35 because of time, you can read that up there. Uh, basically, God says, uh, or, or he says uh, to uh, uh, Jeremiah, bring them in, uh, set before them bowls full of wine and say, drink. And they said, we will not drink wine for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, said, you shall drink no wine. They refused As time passed, God spoke again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and have kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. I'm going to bless you with men, son, because you refused to go and follow the ways of this world. You understood what your dad had taught you you and you kept by it and there's a blessing. You see, what we're talking about is the power of testimony. Our witness to a world, 1 Peter 4, 3 to 5, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. You know what? Some Christians think that sinners are impressed if you drink wine with them. Some Christians think, man, you've got to relate, because if you can't relate, I want to tell you, I was a sinner. Before I was, if I met a Christian drinking, I wouldn't, all honestly, I probably wouldn't even, it wouldn't make any difference to me. Whether you drink, I mean, I'm drinking is just part of life. I mean, if you drink as a Christian, I mean, I I wouldn't, probably wouldn't, but it certainly wouldn't have made an impact on me. Maybe a bit of disgust, maybe not, I don't really know. But I do remember when I got saved going to another wedding. And this was actually Russell Linford himself. But now I'm saved. And me and a school friend, both saved in the, in the church there in, in Scarborough, we went to the, because these were school friends of ours, and now I've gone to his wedding. And I know what a Linfoot wedding is. I know exactly what's going to go down there. And even years, that's exactly what happened. But, so me and him made a decision. We're going to go. We're old schoolmates. So we're going to go there. And as soon as it starts getting a little leery, as soon as the drink starts flying too much, we'll, we'll leave. So we sat there. Hey, Nigel, Andy. Hey, here's a bit. No, don't drink. What do mean you don't drink and I can remember in my mind sitting there with a group of all our schoolmates like a circle around us in a wedding and we're telling them about what Christ has done all because as a Christian we said we don't drink anymore you want to have a testimony you want to have an impact because once you were once darkness Ephesians 5 8 to 12 says but now you are the light in the Lord walk as the the children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. I'm going to read a poem to you, and then we're going to close. Let me give a little background. This lady wrote this poem. She's 17 years old. 
She says, mom has a drug and an alcohol problem. I'm 17 years old. This is obviously written about my mom who has a horrible drug and alcohol problem. She used to leave me home alone to go and gamble for hours, sometimes for days. Whenever she came back, she came back drunk and abusive. I can remember nights where I stayed up and waited for her to come home. Half of me wanted her to come back safely and half of me wished I'd never see her again. She almost killed me about a month ago. I filed a restraining order and I can't see her anymore. I'm gonna read you this poem by this lady called Chase Taylor, One Thing to Say. There's only one thing I could ever say about the way I felt that day. The day we sat with coloring books and kept laughing at our funny looks. A memory forever imprinted in my soul, the only one I'll ever have since you've lost control. There's only one thing I could ever say about the way I felt that day. The day you hurt me for the first time and made me think breathing was a punishable crime. A memory I'd give anything to trade the day my mother started to fade. There's only one thing I could ever say to describe how I hated every day. The days I waited up all night because I couldn't sleep until you made it home all right. A memory of mine you never even knew because when you arrived, I'd hide and avoid you. There's only one thing I could ever say to express how you made me cry that day. The screaming and hate I saw in your eyes wasn't my mother, but an effect of her highs. A memory that haunts and refuses to decay and you don't even remember it anyway. There's nothing I could ever say to tell you how I feel today. The pain in my heart that I never get used to because it's illegal for me to speak to you. I love you, though you've never believed it, through your anger, your hate, and your temperamental fits. There's nothing you could ever say to make the pain go all away. I'll remember you for who you were. From the early memories of jumbled blur, I miss my mother and all she could have been. If she hadn't let alcohol, let her life cave in. And you, as salt and light, want to partake in this stuff. We stand. You know that, that thing of the church up there, that Kabbalah church, whatever it was called, that church? I know the leaders and those of us, they're going to get the judgment of God. But in that group, there was no doubt broken people that didn't need someone to encourage them to drink, but needed to tell them of the power of a king who could set them free and loves them. Christians, call to make a stand and be a testimony that I don't need alcohol to have a good time. I don't need alcohol to laugh or to enjoy fellowship. Any insecurities that I have, I don't need alcohol to cover up. 
I've got Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Master, and the blessing of God. Perhaps as we close, no, let's just close, amen. Let's pray, let's pray together. Come on, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. There are Christians that are here, I don't